everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. I'm Scotty Powell. We're happy to have you this evening. We have with us uh, Stephen Path. He is the Warden Coordinator Meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Wilmington, North Carolina. And tonight we're going to be talking about ocean hazards. Um, the uh, the Coastal Weather Service office uh, offices issue several uh, advisories and hazards and, and programs like that that other weather offices don't. So uh, when you find yourself at, on vacation or visiting the beach or something like that, you may hear something that's not familiar with you. So tonight, we're going to kind of dive into that and kind of go through all of these uh, unique and uh, different advisories and, and program and uh, hazard programs that we see along the coast. And Stephen, uh, working in the Wilmington office, is the perfect person to go to that. He does a lot of outreach events, so happy to uh, have Stephen on with us tonight. As always, if you are watching and you have any questions, uh, feel free to drop them in the comment section. We'll be monitoring those throughout the show, and uh, we'll direct you. Uh, if we don't know the answer, we'll direct you in a place that hopefully you can get the answer. So we, again, appreciate you watching tonight. Uh, we're going to be focusing on ocean hazards and the different uh, programs that uh, the Coastal Weather Service offices use uh, throughout uh, this vacation season that's coming up. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, it's been a long time since we've seen you, so I uh, hope that you've been doing well. First question I want to ask for to you before we kind of get into the, the meat of the interview tonight is, when I say warning coordinating meteorologist, uh, for those who may not be familiar with uh, the weather service terms, what, what is exactly your job there at the National Weather Service in Wilmington? Yeah, I, great, great question to start off with. Uh, we love these long titles, but, you know, good evening. And, and I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with, with the group and, and some of these uh, hazards that we're going to be talking about, um, you know, mean, mean a lot to me. And you never know uh, with the information that we share who we can impact with our lives. We might be able to save someone's life based on the information we share tonight. So thanks, but uh, thank, thanks for having me. But, you know, warning coordination meteorologist, I am like the public liaison. I'll work with civic groups. I'll work with acad the academic community. I'll work with emergency managers and, and also internal operations too, making sure our warning program has the resources that we need and, and um, the information needed, provide training. So I, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me because one day I can be working with a group of second graders. The next day I can be giving a stand-up briefing at an annual hurricane exercise to working with the power squadron, working with the, the nuclear industry. It's, it's absolutely amazing how many people well, that are impacted by weather in unique and specific ways and have unique needs uh, that we can... Uh, learn about and be able to, to help them as best we can. And I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and start off with our topics tonight. We, you know, we look at um, ocean hazards, ocean and coastal hazards for, for what you do. And so we start breaking down into different categories as, as what, uh, what is relayed to the public as far as warnings go, as far as safety concerns. And, and usually one of the things that sticks out the most is rip currents because that one claims sort of the most lives on the beaches every year with rip currents and, uh, and drowning. So I guess we, we'll start out with rip, rip currents. Give us a little bit of explanation about what those are and, and what to look for. Yeah, what, a, what a, a great one to start out with because when you look at the data and look at all the weather-related fatalities in the Carolinas, rip currents lead the way for us. We have a lot of coastline. We have a lot of people that visit our beaches that aren't taught anything about rip currents. And the first day they go to the beach, they might get get caught in one. Uh, so that, that's a challenge in itself. And in, in addition to the, that public awareness type of thing that we have to do, 
forecasting them is, is often a challenge too. So, you know, rip currents, uh, you know, again, more than tornado fatalities, more than lightning fatalities, more than flooding fatalities. That's the number one weather issue for us, not to dis discount any of the other ones. Another interesting stat too, you know, nationally, uh, people often, when you, when you ask them what is the biggest weather-related hazard, uh, they, they, they miss it because you can't see it. You can feel it. It's, it's heat. And, you know, now we're heading in the summertime too and the beach season and, you know, we need to be mindful of the, the heat issues as well. But, but, but rip currents, I mean, can be quite frightening to people and they don't understand the process. I guess the analogy would be is, you know, an electrician works with electricity, which is dangerous, but they know what they're dealing with. They've had the training. They know what to do and what pitfalls to look out for. You know, and, you know, someone coming to the beach, like a lifeguard, knows where to find the rips, knows how to use the rips and, and how to keep people away from them. But the average person has no clue. And, and some of the statistics that we have uh, are quite frightening. Right. I understand the lifeguards sometimes um, they have a direct line to NOAA service accounts across the, the WFOs uh, around the coast of the United States. So they call in a lot of times when they see rip current just to verify that it's happened. But that, that's very sporadic. It depends on where parks are and where some of these swim zones are. So where can the public get this information? Yeah, the best way to get the information, of course, all of our media partners have access and share that as, as well. But we have uh, rip current uh, threat graphics on our web pages. All the weather offices up and down the coast have them. But uh, social media has been a, been a great way for us to, uh, to push information out as well about them. And, you know, we saw a case last year, though, because there, you know, we feel there's deficiencies. Last year, we had Hurricane Lorenzo. The closest approach to the United States was 2,200 miles, yet that hurricane led to more hurricane deaths compared to the other storms that year on the East Coast, and it was 2,200 miles away. So we're, you know, we're thinking we need to start treating these big rip current outbreaks, these huge events, maybe like we do with severe weather outbreaks. Um, tell us a little bit about the risk levels that are involved with rip current forecasting. Yeah, when we look at the forecast and we're looking at wave data, we're looking at the synoptic pattern as well. But anything that, that can pile water up into the beaches is one of the big, big keys. So it could be persistent onshore flow, like that southerly flow wrapping around the Bermuda High that goes right into our south-facing beaches where you, know, you have mass moving into the beach. You have to have it stay in balance. So it's going to try and flow back out to stay in, in a state of equilibrium. So if you have a lot of mass moving in, we typically see that mass being transported out via rip current. So mass in, mass out. So days where we've got uh, decent surf coming on, especially the long period waves from a, from a hurricane swell, uh, you know, that, that, that really are the, the signals that we look for. And uh, you, when, you, when you think about the longer the wave period, the farther offshore that wave is feeling bottom. So in particular, hurricane swell, is very dangerous because now your surf zone, instead of maybe being 20 yards, these longer period waves are feeling the bottom 40, 50 yards out. So if a rip current forms in that surf, it's going to be, you know, it could be as long as a football field, the rip current length. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things that we, we have to consider when, when we deal with these events. What about the stats? What do the stats tell us on, like, say, demographically, where would, might these occur more around yeah, the again, United States? You know, you, you know, the Weather Service maintains statistics like you wouldn't believe about tornadoes and the EF rating and microbursts and all sorts of different things because it's so important what you can learn from them. Uh, and with rip currents you, in the Carolinas, we've kept statistics since 2000. So we've got a pretty healthy database, unfortunately, a healthy database. And we've had since that time 143 people 
drown from rip currents in the Carolinas. And when we start breaking the data down a little bit more, what's really interesting is that 25% of the drownings are people that are bystander trying to be the good Samaritan. They see someone in trouble with a rip current, have no training whatsoever, go rushing in, and they end up drowning in that. So, I mean, a lot of times, a classic call to action information that we've given has been about the person in the rip current, and we need to do a better job of messaging that risk to someone who's on a beach watching someone in a rip current. The other interesting statistics that we see are the, the demographics that are hardest hit are males between 31 and 50 years old. And, you know, I'm in that, that demographic now. And mentally, I might think I'm a little more physically capable than I am, but the reality is that I'm not. And 31 to 50 year old males have kids, some have grandkids, so they're, they're, there's a better chance they're gonna be at the beach with a kid who gets into trouble and has to and has to go and make make a rescue too. If females, it's a little bit younger. It's it's 31 to 40 is is the biggest group there. And if I break down the males, it's really 41 to 50. But that that big group there. But uh, males are five times more likely to drown based on our statistics. And uh, when you look at where people are coming from, about 84 percent of the drownings are people from inland areas. That, that's exactly right. A lot of folks come here, they have no idea that there's several factors in play. In fact, another topic to bring up is longshore currents. We know that we have tidal swings here in the Carolinas up to six feet for South Carolina, even eight feet down into Jekyll Island, Georgia. So that's about the, the highest tidal swing on the southeast coast. But it makes for some pretty nasty currents along the beaches, along with waves and the potential for the riptides. We talk about currents, right? And how strong these currents are yeah. and how does that factor into what you're well, I mean, go? That's a great point too, because we'll, every year it seems, especially when there's uh, more of a, a lunar influence, the higher high tides, lower low tides, you know, a lot of our inlets, you could walk across them during low tide during these, these more of these uh, lunar astronomical ranges. So you got people walk across to an island and they're, they're, they're having a great time, not paying attention. The tide's coming in. It's going to come in quick in that type of situation. And then they can't swim back or they, if, even if they can swim, they get caught up in that, that tidal current and become a victim that way. I mean, uh, I, you know, I've been at the Wilming office 20 years and I'd say there's been at least 20 of them that uh, easily 20 of them where uh, it's, it's a function of the tidal current in, in inlets where water is being forced through narrow areas and, and catching people off guard. A couple, couple more topics for me, and I'll pass it on to um, to Dan. And uh, we talk about some of the other factors on beaches, like sneaker waves or even media tsunamis from release of energy from storms that would cause some some tidal event, right? So um, start with sneaker waves. That's usually like more northwestern United States specific to the Oregon or Puget yeah, Sound you, area. That yeah, we we do get them. We have records of them, and even even video of some sneaker waves. I think when Hurricane Irene. Uh, you know, with the, off Daytona Beach with the, with the pier getting swamped, you know, the phasing of different wave energy that, or uh, the, the, the spectral distribution of waves and when they have constructive interference, you know, if you can get a couple of them where they phase up just right, you might get an anomalously higher wave, the one in a thousand wave based on wave distribution versus what you, your average wave that's out there. And, and, you know, if the timing of these sneaker waves is just right, you might, you know, if it's, if it happens on 4th of July versus December, you know, the impacts are, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like the F5 tornado going through open field versus an F0 going through a city. 
you know, you, you have different results, even though it's the same impact, but different, different uh, magnitude. Uh, but we, we've had fatalities from sneaker waves. Um, you know, in Myrtle, I think it was Myrtle Beach several years ago, guy caught off guard, uh, wave knocked him down and actually uh, gave him a spinal injury as he was hit by that. It was just very powerful, sudden wave. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, they're, they're mainly West Coast. I mean, you think about the West Coast, just the distribution of waves is phenomenal compared to what we see in the Atlantic Ocean. There's so many different wave swell systems that are out there and you have a better chance for having that interference come into play. And I, you know, you hear stories, people fishing out like on a ledge on the West coast and a Rocky shoreline. And you look, look over at them again a little bit later and they're swept away and they're never found again. So it, it certainly is more of an issue there. The meteor tsunamis, uh, we, we've had record of them, um, especially mid Atlantic northward. You hear of some, uh, uh, you hear of the one down in Daytona, I think in 1992 associated with a, the collapse of a tropical squall line. But I guess the best analogy I can say with the trop with the, the uh, meteor tsunamis is if you're ever in the pool and you have a raft and you have it out in front of you and you're pushing up and down on that raft and how long does it take before you start feeling wave energy throughout the pool? It's, it's, it's no different. These meteor tsunamis, it could be significant atmospheric changes or, or large scale area macro burst type of thing. Or, and you know, all that, that air pushing right down on, on top of that wave. And, and then as it releases and you start getting a longer period wave, usually they result in not much in a way of wave run up or inundation, usually get rough currents. Uh, there was, um, I think at Barnegat Inlet, New Jersey, a few years ago when that, that big duratio moved off the coast from like Midwest to the Jersey shore and Delmarva, there was someone snorkeling in Barnegat Inlet. And then on the backside of that, that uh, duration that went through, there was a, a, a meteor tsunami that, that, you know, caused everything to become real turbid and, and, um, you know, rough, very rough currents. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I don't usually lose sleep over the meteor tsunamis. I lose sleep over the submarine landslide tsunamis that, could be lurking right off. I mean, there's a history of them off our coast. Um, and, but either way, that type of wave is the, the predictability is, 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 you know, <laughs> we have a long ways to go before we can do that. It's hard enough getting right. the significant waves, right. Um, you know, five days out, let alone try and forecast a meteor tsunami. Can you tell us a little bit about gale warnings and kind of what goes into those and, and, and how those are used? You know, we have weather systems that result in 30, 34 knots to 47 knots of sustained winds, uh, nor'easter or winter storm, maybe a strong gradient between two systems, non-tropical, uh, then that would be the, the warning that, that we issue for that. Uh, there's no sea requirement with that. Like small craft advisory is at least six foot seas in the Carolinas is the minimum threshold for seas. So that could be a swell that's from a distant storm that, that generates those waves. Uh, but more, more than likely we're issuing a small craft advisor because we're seeing winds around 25 to 34 knots. And that's about the, the level really starts making navigation uh, dangerous. Um, a six foot swell wave in the open ocean versus a six foot four second wave, a locally generated wind wave, big, big difference. You can have boats roll over uh, with, with the higher frequency waves. Uh, they're very steep, we call them steep waves. Now that six foot swell coming in could be a hazard, especially as it starts shoaling. So around inlet entrances, so picture a boater uh, trying to get out the inlet or come back in through the inlet. If you have those big swells coming in, they're feeling bottom, especially with a falling tide. Now you've got waves going counter to the current. 
they can be extremely steep, almost look like cliffs before they, they spill or plunge over. Uh, so there's, we, you know, we do have these, these deep water hazards as they migrate to the coast can create certain issues for us. That's really interesting. And, and so our um, small craft advisories, are they uh, changing to warnings? Is, can you tell us a little bit about the, the changings that are happening to that? Yeah, there might be some, I mean, you know, we're, we're going through a hazard simplification where we're, we're taking a look at a variety of products and trying to make it a little bit easier. Uh, when you look at the weather.gov map and you see all the advisories and hazards and warnings going on, I mean, sometimes the things lit up like a Christmas tree. So we've, uh, the agency has invested a lot of um, effort with social scientists, with core partners to try and find a better way. So we, we will see some changes with that. I don't know to the extent how small craft advisories will change. Uh, gale warnings, I don't think we're going to have any change. And of course, storm warning, when you have over 47 knots sustained, uh, we, we would have, have that. As we all know, with any sort of uh, simplification of, of hazards or anything weather related, it, it has uh, impacts on a lot of sides. So that's great to hear that the social outreach there's happening to try and figure out how that will impa impact everything. Um, one more thing uh, that I have to talk about as far as open uh, water hazards are concerned. Um, as far as the special marine warnings, um, how do you, what's the best way if I'm a boater, if I'm, if, if I'm going to be impacted by these special marine warnings, what's the best way? Well, first of all, what, what is that and what, how, do, how does that warning get established? And then, and then how is uh, a person that might be impacted by it, how do I find that and look for it and, and know that it's happening? Yeah, it's, it's a, a great point. And it is a challenge just because of limitations of coastal weather radio, uh, cell phone connectivity, uh, you know, access to apps. When you're further out, when you're farther offshore, you're, you're losing a lot of the ability to, to receive this information. So I mean, it's always, always important to know before you go, if there's a day that we're calling for all these thunderstorms, it's not worth it, you know, live to play another day type of thing. So right off the get go, uh, we've lost boaters to, to strong to severe thunderstorms before I'm, mean, you know, knock on countertop, not lately, uh, but but it has happened where you know, people are taking risks and get caught by quickly evolving storms like the, even that MCV that went through yesterday morning here. Uh, you know, it, it, I would not have wanted to be anywhere near a boat with that coming through. But when we do have something like that come through, if we anticipate winds over 34 knots, uh, then we would issue a special marine warning or and or if it had water spouts with it or large hail. Because, you know, large hail in the open ocean, can, you could break uh, the windshields on the boats and things like that. Too, but usually they're issued for 34 knots or higher sustained, or I'm, I'm sorry, any gusts 34 knots or higher and uh, any potential for a water spout. Uh, when we, as soon as we send the information out, it will play over, over the weather radio. And you know, a lot of the, the, the VHF bands on a, on a boat radio, you know, you can, you can see or hear uh, those messages coming across. Now, some boats have radar on them, but they're not the right band to interpret weather data when they're twirling around. Usually if there's a big thunderstorm target, the band that the marine radars are used, you might only see the edge of what's out there. It can't, it's not powerful enough to penetrate into the storm. So that really doesn't provide much in any way of value. But, uh, but I think there are some providers via satellite where you can get information. But, but it is a great question because you need to be connected to that environmental intelligence if you're going to be in an area where you're at extreme risk. You can't just 30 miles offshore, you can't just seek safe harbor in 10 minutes. 
Uh, you get life and death, death decisions to make, which is why we say avoid it. If at all possible, you know, go a day when there aren't thunderstorms in the forecast. Uh, Stephen, a couple more advisories to cover uh, with you. And one of them is uh, one that we see almost monthly, pretty much in the Carolinas with the lunar cycles um, and onshore winds and other factors. So the first one we'll talk about is coastal flood advisories. Uh, what exactly are they and what should the public be looking for when they're issued? Yeah, that advisory, unfortunately, we're issuing more and more frequently. And there's a couple reasons for that, you know, with, with sea level rise is one issue, but there are also parts along the Carolinas where there's actually subsidence going on. So the land is sinking. There's parts where the land is rising a little bit and there's parts where it's, it's sinking too. Um, you, you can also have changes to the local hydrology. Like they did a lot of the dredging in the Cape Fear River. So between the subsidence, sea level rise and the dredging, you know, our, our number of coastal flood advisories has gone up incredibly. Now, the thresholds for where we, uh, before we decide to issue one or not, vary based on the datum that's related to that location. So you can't apply 5.5 feet, uh, feet mean low or low water at every coastal station because their datum varies. So what we have done, worked with a hydrologist, we've done coastal flood surveys, get out there when there is flooding going on and observe the impacts we call that E19 data. It's mainly for rivers, but we do have E19 data for coastal locations as well. And uh, once we know what the level is and what the impacts are, now we have a good database and we can put good information into a coastal flood advisory uh, based on the levels that were, are predicted to, to occur. So moving on to the next advisory, and I think our last advisory for the night, um, high surf advisory. I think this is one that sometimes um, especially for beach visitors, not necessarily residents, but someone who's coming from inland areas. Um, it's easy to underestimate a big surf. Um, four feet may not sound that big, but all of a sudden you get out in the water and four feet is a you know, heavy wave. So tell us a little bit about um, how to be safe during the high, high surf advisory. Yeah, and that, you, know, you, you mentioned the heavy wave, the heavy, you can, you can feel the power on those days where it's, it's really moving like a washing machine out, out there and unless you really know what you're doing, you know, that, that's something that should be avoided uh, you know, just between the plunging breakers, potential for spinal injuries, those, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and it makes you hard to see too. So you get into trouble and you're in this rough surf or high surf, you might be hard to, to, to spot uh, and, or even hard to get someone's attention if, if you're in the perspective of being in the water. But you know, some of the thresholds we use, I, I think are about eight, uh, six to eight feet breakers that we get. Um, Depending on how um, clean the ocean is, depending on the wind, um, you know, surfers get excited when we do high surf advisories, especially if you get a light offshore wind and it cleans it up a little bit. It, it doesn't look like a washing machine, but it's still powerful and dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, the thresholds vary up and down the East Coast, but our wave climatology, you know, it's not like uh, Cape Hatteras. Uh, like Reitzel Beach is, is uh, we get decent waves there, but typically not like we see it at, at the Outer Banks. And then you get in the Long Bay, Myrtle Beach, you got to get the wave energy coming in the right direction for us to issue a high surf advisory. You know, the, the frying pan shoals block a lot of that, that easterly swell where Reitzel Beach might get it, but Myrtle Beach won't. So it's, it's really unique to the, the shape of the coast as well, but it's, it's a great point to talk about. Move to my last question before I hand it off to Scotty. Chemical and oil spills, I'm probably going to see this a little bit less frequently, but um, if you're out in the water, it's certainly still a hazard if it's ongoing. Um, where is this a problem? Is it a problem in the Carolinas? And if so, how can we be aware that it's happening? Well, it's, it's frightening how many tankers, 
<laughs> bring all sorts of scary things just off the coast. And in the 21 years I've been in Wilmington, there have been a couple close calls, uh, especially uh, I think one time a barge with maybe number six broke loose off of Cape Fear and luckily they in a storm and luckily they were able to, to get a hold of it and make sure it, it didn't cause any problems. But uh, you know, with oil rigs, it isn't a big issue for us because we, we don't deal with any. I mean, uh, more more for the Gulf Coast. I mean, I'm more concerned with maybe a, a ship with shoal hitting a shoal or a collision, sea fog event, uh, and you got ships carrying xylene or some other terrible chemical that collides with another one, and and now we have to deal with the decision support thing, working with emergency managers, and that's why I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be severe, clear weather. We we always have to be ready. Uh, and most of these events are a result of some mistake. Uh, and when we talk about oil spills, but you know, at least what I, you know, I'm proud you know, part of NOAA is the National Ocean Service, and they have scientific service coordinators that have responsibility for each part of the coast. So it's important for us to have a good relationship with the coordinators in, in our area, which we do. So we, we've exercised with the Coast Guard, uh, going through their incident command training, uh, doing their oil spill exercises, and working with the scientific services coordinator, because it's all about knowing who the players are, not just showing up going, okay, what do I do? How can I help you? These are hazards that have come about from, from out in the water. What about any of the hazards that have come originated from within inland? I think one of the biggest examples we've all seen is after, um, I believe it was Hurricane Matthew and, and, and maybe Florence as well, um, seeing a lot of uh, stuff being carried out from the rivers and, and satellite imagery showing it, making its way into the water. Was there any sort of response to that as far as keeping people off the beaches for a period of time or any sort of uh, hazards associated with that that might happen again the next time we get a big hurricane? It's a great point too. You know, there's there's the, the debris hazards too for boaters. There's the, the, the biological type of hazards too. There's a lot of things washing down pollu uh, pollutants that, you know, I, I think the rule of thumb is, I mean, you really don't want to be messing with the water after a hurricane or a huge flood event. Uh, bacterial counts are high, uh, the other pollutants that are, that are out there, you know, give time for, for, for it to flush out. And what's, what's amazing is that after a hurricane, the fishing is usually tremendous in, along the waterways and, and just offshore for that month or two afterwards. One thing that uh, very photogenic around the Carolina coast, and, and we see uh, these events happen, or water spouts. Uh, so can you talk to us about maybe the conditions that, uh, that warrant to these water spouts? And uh, I know you guys monitor these, and, and you give out a, a, a surf hazards. Uh, it's kind of like a beach day forecast, and you give out water spout threat, lightning threat. So uh, talk a little bit about that, that forecast you give out, but also uh, the conditions that uh, that are really uh, able to produce these water spouts off the coast. Yeah, and I, you know, I got to give props to our, our one of our lead forecasters, Tim Armstrong, who developed this water spout risk where he went back and, and looked at a catalog of, of events that we've had over the years and found some really interesting uh, information about instability uh, and actually lack of shear type of environment, but with the boundary in the area like a um, a land breeze or, or some other boundary that might be stalled up, up there. So that was, you know, we, we, we think, you know, people see a water spout and they, they might think it's a, you know, it's the, the classic tornado and some of them are like the big Myrtle beach tornado, July 
6th, 2001, I, I, somewhere around there, uh, was actually in like, you know, like a, a classic tornado that just happened to ride down, ride down the beach and, and move into the water. So some are classic tornadoes, like the, even the, the tropical cyclone tornadoes are more of the classic type uh, versus your, your regular water spout. So, but, but every summer, we get the right instability in place. We get light winds through the atmosphere with that boundary there. And we get, um, you get funnels that, that, that come out and, and some of them can be in absence of any rain uh, and uh, then just lollygag around. Uh, on occasion, maybe once every three years, we have to issue a tornado warning for one that's uh, moving closer to shore. The last one we had move ashore was near Myrtle Beach, uh, near the Ferris wheel a couple of years ago. We had one at Carolina Beach back in 2011, the week before Irene, Hurricane Irene, I think it was. Uh, we, we had to do a tornado warning for that. And uh, you know, they don't show up on radar all that great. We use some products like Spectrum with to, to really see uh, some of that, that smaller scale turbulence that's, that's going on associated with, with the funnels. They're, they're usually very narrow. So uh, you know, when the, with the beam spreading out from the radar after, after, after a distance, you know, the circulations sometimes are too small and they, they, they don't get captured by the beam all that well. So it's, it's, it's important for us to have partnerships with the Coast Guard and the boating community and, and lifeguards as well to see them and get, get that information back to us. So we can take, take action unless it's a little bit bigger one that shows up on radar. Well, Stephen, we, we've certainly appreciated um, this all useful information as um, as our listeners and followers uh, head out to, to the beach for uh, some um, relaxation time and uh, we hope to tonight's uh, program will help you all who are who are listening and watching uh, to know these hazards that uh, on a sunny beach day there's still things that that we need to pay attention to uh, for for folks who may be coming into the Wilmington Myrtle Beach um, uh, the southern uh, North Carolina coast the forecast area that you cover uh, Stephen uh, what's the best way to, to follow this information? Do you have a, a section on your website? Uh, I know you mentioned social media. Uh, where can our followers and listeners uh, find that info at? Yeah, each office on their webpage, like wilmingtonweather.gov slash ILM or charleston is weather.gov slash CHS. You know, we have a surf zone uh, forecast link on, on the webpage there. It's, it's not as pronounced as, as we'd like to be. It's usually towards the, the, bo- the bottom, but there's good information there. But I, I would recommend you know tapping into us on on Twitter or on Facebook, and especially with Twitter because some of these beach hazard statements that we issue for when the risk is moderate or high for rip currents. I mean, you would get that information that way, and you might learn about some other things too. So if you're heading to the beach, make sure you follow uh, National Weather Service Wilmington, uh, Charleston, Moorhead City. I think uh, and. Um, those I think are that's the three. three in, in yeah, Virginia has a little bit of North Carolina. Yeah, so so follow those accounts if you're heading to the beach. That way, you're up to uh, up to date on all that's going on along the ocean. So, Stephen, thank you for your time. Uh, we hope that uh, you have a great uh, rest of the summer. I know hurricane season is uh, is lurking and uh, around the corner, and uh, you're getting prepared for that. So, hopefully, it'll be a quiet season for you. We uh, appreciate uh, you joining us tonight. You're, well, you're welcome. We can use the break, so I'll take it. <laughs> Definitely. So thank you guys for uh, watching the Carolina Weather Group. We'll see you next time. Have a great evening.